good morning. Welcome. It's so great to be with you. I'm presently involved in a little exercise. I'm uh, taking a series of scriptures and writing about them for my children and my grandchildren. I'm picking out scriptures that God has used in my life in particular times and seasons. We believe the entire Bible is inspired and it's the word of God, that the entire Bible is true. But every so often the Lord will take a particular scripture and for a particular moment or season in our life, he will lift up that scripture, magnify it, and let us know that this is for us for that moment and that season. And I want to leave that testimony for my children and my grandchildren. So I'm doing about 10 of them. I'm up to eight. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. Living and active. It's meant to be part of a living, a living part of my life. And so I'm trying to illustrate that for my kids. There's at least three levels of God's will in the Bible for our lives. One is the cosmic will of God. That's like Genesis to Revelation, created in the image of God, fallen through sin, redeemed through, through the Savior who died and rose again, all the way into the book of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth, that cosmic will that God is, God is presenting to us in the word. Then there's the general will of God. Those are things that God wants for all of us. So in Galatians, where the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, self-control and all of those, he wants that for all of us. But then there is the particular, the specific will of God, where the Lord takes a truth and gives it to you as his son or his daughter, and says, this is for you. David Foster is one of the mega successful music producers in the history of popular music in America. He was telling about a gala event that he was uh, hired to organize, and it was gala. It involved such performances as a duet with Celine Dion, and the Italian tenor, Andrea Bocelli. But about 48 hours before the event, Bocelli calls up David Foster and says, my flights out of Europe aren't working, I can't get there. Foster thinks, I got 48 hours to find a replacement for someone to sing a duet with Celine Dion. And so he calls up a vocal coach that he knows, and he says, would you send me clips of some of the... Some of the uh, people you're coaching, and so the vocal coach sent him about six clips. David Foster says, I start listening to these vocal clips. First one, ah, second, no, third, no, fourth, fifth, ah. He hears a voice, and he thinks, this voice will be great with Celine Dion. He calls up the young man. I use the phrase young man because he was a teenager, and he tells them about this event that's being hosted, that uh, Bocelli can't get there. He'd like him to fly down and sing a duet with Celine Dion, and the young man refuses. He says, I, I can't come. I've got school tomorrow. <laughs> and so he hangs up. 
The young guy goes into the living room. His parents says, who is that? He says, well, it's a, it's a music producer, uh, David Foster. I said, well, what do you want? He said, well, he wants me to sing a duet with Celine Dion. They said, well, well, David Foster didn't get to where he was by just giving up, so he called back. And he said, now, now, young man, I want you to know I'm not inviting you to come. I'm telling you to come. Get on a plane and get here. Well, with the parents' encouragement, this young man with some fear and trepidation as a teenager shows up at the event. It's rehearsal. He walks out onto the stage. There's people standing around on stage. Someone takes him over and introduces him to Celine Dion, who is in conversation with some other people. Celine glances over, acknowledges him, glances back to the group, and then David Foster says, it's as if a light goes on, and she suddenly realizes the situation this young man is in. And she turns away from the group she's talking with, gives her full attention to this young man, and begins to talk to him, to encourage him. And it's time for their rehearsal number. And she takes the hand of this young teenager named Josh Groban and leads him to the front of the stage where they practice their duet together. Now there are times where the Lord takes some scripture and he comes to you and he takes your hand and he said, I want to show you something. This is for you. For you today, in the circumstance you are in, this is for you. And so I thought I would just share out of these eight that I've done so far, just share three scriptures where the Lord has just taken my hand and said, Adairi, this is for you. I want you to see this. This is for you in your present circumstance with the hope that you will realize that that's part of the heart of God for you is to use the scripture as living and active in your life. One of the first is in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I've been taught and I intellectually believe that good was more powerful than evil, but I did not feel that way. I was bullied as a kid. I remember getting in a car, sitting between two older guys on our way to Boy Scout, when one would just turn to me, buckle up his fist, and slam it into my stomach until I thought I would never breathe again. That kind of thing happened again and again and again in my life. And out of that experience came the conviction that evil, and I'm a rule follower, and if I'm living in evil, I don't have to follow rules. I thought evil will always conquer good because they don't have to follow any of the rules that, that, that those who are trying to do good follow. And so while I was told that good was more powerful than evil, I didn't believe it in my spirit. One day, the Lord took me by the hand and said, you have to start believing that good conquers evil. You have to live that way. Now, you and I have been living in days 
in which we can feel very powerless. Culturally, politically, with the health and the pandemic, economically, we can feel we're in a place of powerlessness. Just before the pandemic happened, a few months before, I was in Cambridge, England doing some study. And I met a young woman who was there from Kenya, Africa. And she was studying. Her husband pastored a small Nazarene church just outside of Nairobi. And they had two young sons. And so we kept in touch after um, I got back to the United States. When the pandemic broke out, she couldn't get back to Africa. So her family is suffering and she can't even get there. And one day she wrote me an email and said, the churches have all closed down. <clears throat> In Kenya, if the churches closed down, they're not taking offerings and my husband has no money. And then this phrase, my children are starving. <clears throat> and I thought, <clears throat> I can't take care of all the ills in the world. But why would the Lord put this person in my life if not to do something if her children are starving to death? Now that, I, I'm not, I don't even know what to do. I, I, I don't even know how to, how do you get money to someone in Africa? And so I started rummaging around and I found a nonprofit who regularly helped people in Africa and they said they would help get money to this family, to this man who I've never met, to these two small children who I've never met. And so I talked to my wife and we got some money together. I visited with some friends. They got some money together. And over a few weeks, we sent $2,000, which in, in their money and the cost of their food would be about $6,000 worth of food. And we had it wired over to Nairobi, Kenya. And after a few months, this woman sent a letter to the nonprofit which she requested be sent to anybody that helped her family. And my wife and I got a copy of this letter. And in the letter, she thanked those who were involved in keeping her children from starving to death. And then she said, and as we were sitting at our table with the food on it, my older son said, if this is what it means to be a Christian, then I want to be a Christian. Now that seemed to bless them, but I'm going to tell you what it did for me. It did not leave me with a sense of being powerless. It left me with a sense of being empowered. For no matter what else is going on in our world, you and I still can go out and do good. We can do good in our family. We can do good to our neighbors. We can do good to our friends. We can do good. Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. What'd you do yesterday? I did good. Got any plans for tomorrow? I'm going to do good. We can just go out and we can start making a list. Just because we can't do all the good that needs to be done doesn't mean we can't do the good 
that we should be doing. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, God through the prophet Jeremiah tells the Israelites, seek the welfare of the city. For as the city prospers, so will you. Now you know why that matters? It's because they were living in Babylon. These were not Israelites living in Jerusalem. And the Lord saying, now seek the welfare of your city, Jerusalem. They were refugees in a foreign country, in a pagan culture, where the culture was pagan, the values were pagan, the gods were pagan, and in that environment, they were told, seek the welfare of the city. For as the city prospers, so will you. And so in the midst of powerlessness, if we begin to commit our lives to good, the Bible reminds us good is more powerful than evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, wherever good is being done, Christ is present even if he be not named. Wherever good is being done, Christ is present even if he be not named. And that is our legacy as a church. The early church lived in a culture, the Roman culture, that did not value the birth of females. And so baby girls would actually be taken out in the dark and out into the wilderness or along the seashore and they would be abandoned to either starvation or wild beasts. And the Christian community who opposed such values and valued human life would send search parties out into the wilderness and along the coast in order to find these abandoned babies. And the church would raise these young women. And this became so well known in the pagan world that it is written that Roman soldiers, when seeking wives, would go to the churches because they knew the churches were full of virtuous women, young women. So aware was the culture of the good the church was doing. And in a study of the behavior of people in the midst of the another pandemic in the midst of, the, of the, uh, the plagues that would cover Europe, it became well known that it was the Christians who would stay in the city and care for the sick and dying even as others fled. Our heritage is to do good. And if you want to find a way to overcome a sense of powerlessness, you just start doing good. Jesus did good. He went to a wedding and they ran out of wine. It doesn't seem a very lofty goal for the Savior of the world to be giving himself to. But his first miracle was was to turn water into wine at a wedding because he was doing good. And he gives us the story of the good Samaritan. And he invites the lepers into his presence And he visits the Samaritan woman who'd lived in rejection, the woman at the well. 
And he used the tears of the woman whom the Bible says has sinned much as she wiped his feet with her hair. Again and again and again and again, Jesus' response to the evil was to do good. I have a friend who is a uh, hospital chaplain. So this has been an interesting season for him and he and his wife are friends, very good friends of my wife and I. His wife is in the fifth stage of the seven stages of dementia. And so they have complex days that are theirs. And the days they know ahead will become even more complex. But they began a practice some time ago where at the end of the day, they would take out a little book and they write down three good things they they are grateful for that day. Now they're not doing it just because it sounded like a good idea. He actually had read a study that had been done by Duke University. And it was done in regard to what happened to people when they had to do this exercise. Because one of the things that it requires is you live in anticipation of seeing good because you know you have to write your list at the end of the day. So it creates this anticipation of good. And the Duke University study found that it actually changes the chemical makeup of the brain when you are regularly looking and anticipating for good. And so when Paul says in Romans 12, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That is both personally healthy for us and it is healthy for those around us. Good is stronger than evil. So here was another thing that the Lord took my hand one day and led me to. Comes out of John chapter 21. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's getting ready to ascend to heaven. And uh, he's having a conversation with Peter. There are other people around but he's having a rather personal conversation with Peter. He's telling Peter how he's going to die. And it wasn't good news because Peter was actually going to die a martyr's death. And so Jesus is explaining to Peter how he's going to die. And Peter is listening, but he glances over and the, the passage says, he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is always the way that John referred to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He looks over and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says to Jesus, well, what about him? (laughs) I said, man, the risen Christ. And this is, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. What is that to you? Follow me. Now I'm on, I'm on social media because I follow my kids and grandkids that way. But if you're on social media much, I just sometimes just shake my head. I think the world appears full of people who think they know everything about everything and feel ordained to tell everybody 
what they know and that I should know. And if I don't agree with them, I'm either stupid or immoral or both. They did a study of missionary compounds years ago. A lot of missionaries in foreign cultures lived in compounds, mostly for the point of safety. But they began to see some very negative social results of missionary compounds. And here were two. One is they got to a place where the people inside the compound compound didn't want to listen to the voices of anybody outside of the compound. So the decisions were always made. It's a very internal decision-making process and a rejection of outside voices. Here's the other one. If you're living in a missionary compound, you're living close enough where you get to see what everybody else is doing. I can see when somebody gets up. Do they get up? I can see when they go to bed. Do they stay up late? I can see something about how they spend their money, how they treat their spouse, how they discipline their children, how they spend their time. And the more and more I see all of this, the more compelled I am to stand in some sense of judgment because we all have our ways. And you know what, you know what about our ways? Like I got my ways and while I know you got your ways, you'd be better off if you had my ways. (laughs) So it's very easy to live, living that, to start standing in judgment about everybody else's ways. And so one day the Lord had to take me to this verse and said, you know, you get, you get yourself too entwined. You get, you get too messed up with stuff that's not, not on your plate. It's on their plate. Don't be eating off their plate. That's their plate. You got enough on your plate. Follow me. You got enough on your plate. I put enough on your plate. You stay with your plate. Now, it's not about not caring, but you know, I maybe have preached 2,000 sermons in my life. You know the single greatest negative response I've ever gotten from a sermon? I preached a sermon based upon the rich young ruler when Jesus said, well, sell all that you have and follow me. The Bible says he turned around and he left. And I said, you know, Jesus didn't go after him. And the title of the sermon was Let People Be. And I tell you, you'd have thought I was preaching heresy. (laughs) I mean, Christians came out of the woodwork. What do you mean, let people be? It's like, why why am I alive if it's not to badger other people? (laughs) You and I were told God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I found it's easy to get to where I have a wonderful plan for your life, which God approves of. (laughs) And this thing about about letting people be. What is that to you? Now, John Oakland had an announcement on the screen about the Global Leadership Summit. I think the Global Leadership Summit is one of the greatest leadership events I've ever seen in my life. I try to go, try to go every year. I, I've, I've read hundreds of leadership books, been to a, so many events, but the Global Leadership Summit has, is so creative. It, the, the unique blend that we can learn from anyone and that both secular and Christian leaders are sharing insights that might be from a great church somewhere or from the Harvard Business School. I, it, it's just a wonderful concept. 
The Global Leadership Summit came out of Willow Creek, which was one of the great churches of the United States. But as sometimes happened, the leader fell, failed, and he resigned. But there were some people who thought, the Global Leadership Summit is worth salvaging. This is really a great tool. And so some of the great leaders in the United States rallied. Groeschel, pastor of Life Church, largest church in the United States. Uh, John Maxwell, who's written dozens of leadership books and spoken all over the world. A number of leaders rose to say, this, this is valuable. We're going to keep doing this. There was one particular leader, however, very prominent, who had been part of the leadership summit, who said, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to throw in on this. And then some bad news came out, and so he withdrew. Word on the street, his handler said, well, it might hurt your brand, or, you know. And I started grousing about that. Ah, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, but that's not always true. When the going gets tough, some people just bail out. Ah, I, said, I told somebody how irritated that was, and all about brand and image, and I was so righteous. <laughs> and I'd carried on like two days, and finally, I mean, it's like God standing in front of me, said, what is that to you? A, how in the world do you know, living up in Bozeman, Montana, what the facts are about this situation? You have no idea what's actually going on. Then number two, even if you did know, why do you think you have any right to judge the situation? What is that to you? When I think I can stand in judgment over everything, then I become a dangerous person. So every so often... I'd like to say I learned this years ago, but I haven't. Every so often, the Lord has to take my hand and take me back. You know, I once took all my kids individually on a camping trip. Whenever they would graduate from the eighth grade, I'd take them on a camping trip. We'd sit by the campfire at night, and I'd ask them individually, I just love having you as my son or my daughter. I just think it's the greatest thing in the world. If you could change one thing about your dad, what would it be? I took Nathan, graduated from the eighth grade, 12 years old. Oh, no, dad, you're the greatest. I just love you. You're just, I just love. Yeah, yeah, but you know, everybody's got. If you could change one thing, what would, you know, well, Okay. You know, sometimes when you get bothered by something, you just go on and on and on. <laughs> and two years later, I took Nolan and I said, if you could change one thing about your dad, what, oh no, you're the greatest dad. Yeah, but, but if you could change, well, dad, sometimes you just go on and on and on. <laughs> and two years later, I took my daughter I could have answered it for her, but I said, if you could change one thing. Well, Dad, sometimes you just go on and on. (laughs) 
I'm so successful, look at me, follow, you know. (laughs) So every so often, the Lord has to take me to this verse. What is that to you? You follow me. And so here's the last one. Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 23. It's a Christmas story. And Matthew is writing, the virgin shall give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God with us. For most of my life, I felt alone. Like I grew up in a culture, I grew up in a farm culture where I didn't know anybody who couldn't fix anything. Other than the television, I don't ever remember anything my dad wouldn't work on, he couldn't fix. And all of his, all my aunts and uncles were the same. And all the farmers around us were the same. I mean, they just had, they had mechanical skills. They just knew how things worked. A car could go by on the gravel road and some of the guys I'd hang out with could tell the make and year of the car on the basis of the taillights. And I'd think, how did they do that? Because I couldn't make out the make of the car and I didn't even care. (laughs) And I couldn't fix anything, but I didn't even want to fix anything. When I was 12 years old, I bought my own briefcase. And I didn't know anybody with a briefcase. Then I bought paper and pens, and I put it in my briefcase. Even if I had a sleepover, I'd take my briefcase with me. Our school had a fair, and had little booths to raise money, and one was, you break these balloons, and one of the prizes was this pen set. And I spent all my money in that one booth trying to find the balloon that had the little thing that I'd get the pen set. And I think it was rigged because I, I never, never won the pen set. <laughs> and I'm an introvert anyway, but you know, if you've been hurt, the tendency is to extend your normal trait to an extreme. And so already an introvert, I just became, my response to hurt was simply to isolate myself and adopt aloneness as a way of life. Because being with people was often just too painful. I couldn't find anybody like me. I was was reading the Reader's Digest Almanac when I was 14 just to say I'd read it. And one day the Lord just took me to this verse and and said in effect, it is not good for you to be alone. He didn't let me by with, well, that's just the way I am. One of the first things God said to humans was, it is not good for man to be alone. And he began to lead me down a path of welcoming other people into my life. And it was a time-consuming path fraught with fear. 
as I tried again and again to put myself in places or situations where I chose to be with people when I could have chosen to be alone. Now, one of the clever ways the Lord does that is he, he tricks you into marrying somebody who only thinks life works if you're around a crowd. And so, Marcy, the, like, if two are good, four is better. And if four is better, eight is great. You know, it just... And I used, to, I, used to, I used to react to that, and I had to start, no, I have to move towards that. I have to intentionally invite people into my life and invite myself into their life if I'm going to be a healthy person. And so I determined not to let this lie that it was all right to be isolated. I determined not to let it rest untroubled, but declare a preference, preferential future that I was, that I was going to be with people. And so we have people over to the house. Now, I'm, I'm not a great conversationalist. I can, I can stand up here and do this it, it feels, I'll tell you what it feels to me, it feels like we're sitting in the living room and we're just talking together. But if you and I were just in a living room talking, after I got beyond, boy, it's been a nice day, I run out of words. <laughs> I, I don't know how that happens, it just... But the Lord said, I want you to be, I want you to be with people. And he took me by the hand and he said, this is how I want you to live. And so that's what I've chosen. So tomorrow, about 8.30 in the morning, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to fly to Portland, Oregon, where there is a couple, about my wife and I age, who we've known for some years, but they don't have many friends. And about two years ago at a vacation resort in Cabo San Lucas, she got sick. And she's been sick ever since. She's got some kind of low-grade infection that won't leave her intestines and her stomach. And now she's got almost permanent tubes running out of her body. And her husband, as a caretaker, wore down. And then he wasn't feeling well. And he went to the doctor. And the doctor said he had cancer. So now she's sick. And he's got cancer. So he starts taking chemo. But he had a heart attack in his 40s. And so the chemo starts reacting with his heart and his heart starts, starts reducing its effectiveness, which impacts his kidneys and his kidneys start shutting down. So he ends up in the hospital. They have to restore his heart's activity, repair his kidneys, so he, he can even start chemo. And he was already exhausted. And she still has this. I thought, what's the good of being somebody's friend? if you're not going to be there. So I have no other purpose tomorrow than to fly out to Portland and rent a car and go over to Beaverton and for two days just go visit their house and sit in their living room and be with them to let them know that they are not alone. alone. 
It is not good for man or woman to be alone. And so the Lord takes us on a journey. The last thing the Apostle Paul ever wrote in the New Testament, we find in the second book of Timothy, in chapter 4. By this time, Paul is in prison, and it's a severe prison experience. He's near the end of his life. He will eventually be decapitated. And he's writing to Timothy, who he once, of whom he once said, I have no one like him. And in this last chapter, it is full of people. He's telling Timothy, I sent, I sent Titus here, and I sent... He says, the only one with me right now is Luke. Twice in the book, he says, come to me as quickly as you can. Come to me as quickly as you can. Then he writes this amazing sentence. He said, at my first defense, everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and encouraged me. At my first defense, everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and encouraged me. And then as an afterthought, which I think here here the Lord's given us this for 2,000 years, he said, and by the way, I hope you come before winter and when you come, remember to stop by Troas and bring my coat And there will be a time in your life, you may have already experienced it, when no matter who else you have in your life, you're going to have to stand with Paul. And you want to look back and be able to tell your friends or your family or others. But in that season, the Lord stood at my side and he encouraged me. And so then that's been part of my spiritual journey over the past few years. Why don't we close with prayer? And as we just wait for a moment with our heads bowed, could I just ask you, is there a Is there a moment, is there something going on in your life? And you just need to know, but the Lord stood at my side. Whoever else is there or is not there, that this Jesus who said, I am with you, is standing at your side and is encouraging you as an expression 
of how he values you and how he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your kindness to us. We thank you for those times where you take us by the hand and lead us to a truth that is our truth for a season in our life. We thank you that you do not ever leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.